0: I'm going to pick up at verse 17 of Matthew 20, and it reads, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. The minute he finishes saying that to his disciples, it's the third time he's spoken of the crucifixion and the resurrection, third time. And, and, and Luke says in chapter 18, the disciples didn't understand any of these things. It was hidden from them. They didn't know the things of which he was speaking. They're still clueless. He finishes his statement about what's going to happen to him, and they're like, whatever. Something's wrong with the guy. As soon as he finishes that statement, look at verse 20, then, at that moment, then, The mother of Zebedee's sons, Zebedee means thunder, sons of thunder. These two guys, James and John, they were up at the Mount of Transfiguration with with Peter and Jesus, and they saw Moses and Elijah. Then the the mother of of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from Jesus. Mark says uh, that she basically asked an open-ended question, saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Just say yes, and I'll tell you what it is later. Good Jewish mom. She's like working him. And, uh, and, and 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 he says, "'What do you wish?' Jesus asked her. And she said to him, "'Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom.'" So one would have the second place in the kingdom, and the other would have the third place in the kingdom, the positions of authority. But Jesus answered and said, "'You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with?' And they said to him, Peter, uh, excuse me, James and John said to "'Jesus, yeah, we can indeed. We can do that. Sure, we're able. And Jesus responds in verse 23. says to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, so you had the 12 disciples. Now you got the 10 and the two because the, the war is breaking out. Watch this. When the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased. In the Greek, it means they were indignant. They were at a point where they were vehemently arguing with one another. Wars breaking out between the 12. They were displeased with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself. He said, calm down, come on over here. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And then everyone say, just as this is a great way to end this picture. Jesus is just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us what it means to be a servant for Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all, but more than a servant, you speak of a slave, a doulos, an under rower, and so, Lord, as we examine this passage, Holy Spirit, we ask that You'd minister to us and strengthen us, and establish us according to Your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. We'll have a seat. Jesus begins this um, this passage by explaining the the crucifixion, and. We find in Luke 18, the disciples have no clue what he's talking about, this crucifixion. It's, it's, he, he's going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the road and he says to them, all 12 of them, Judas is there too. He takes all 12 of them aside, says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man, me, will be betrayed to the chief priests. You know, Judas is like, how does he know? And he'll be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Jesus never spoke of the crucifixion without the resurrection. He always did them together. This is the third time. They still don't have a clue. They still don't have a clue. And, and he is the biggest show in town. The religious leaders are frightened by him. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees are scared to death because everybody's following him. He's healing diseases. He's casting out demons. He's walking on water. He's, he, he's feeding thousands. And, and it's, it's, His notoriety is growing and his following is massive. And they're losing their angle and, and their handle on the people. So they're preparing beforehand to shut him up. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, this is, this, he knows what awaits him. It's going to be his last trip to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. Uh, the, the Romans, it'll be at the hands of the Romans. They're going to execute him. He'll be tried in the court of the Sanhedrin. Pontius Pilate will be part of this. Everyone's going to be complicit. It's going to be awful. And as, as he's coming, he pulls these disciples aside. And all they can see is... This is the Messiah. He's coming in to deliver us from the oppression of Rome. Rome has its boot on the neck of every, you know, Jewish citizen and he's going to deliver us and, and he's going to set us free as the Messiah's promised. But what Jesus says in this passage, which is fascinating to me, is he describes what's going to happen to him. He says, mock, scourged, and crucified. Scourge means whipped with a cat of nine tails, and Romans perfected this. It had metal and glass shards at the end of, of long, flat strands of, of leather. They'd soak it in water so it could really get a hold on the back as it would snap on the back the metal and the glass would dig in and then would pull it out and just shred the back like hamburger meat. And this was the scourging that they would give him as he would be tied to one of these poles, his back would be exposed and they would just go to town on him. When we were in Israel, uh, you go into the Antonio Fortress. And as you get down the Antonio Fortress, it's down underneath tells levels of civilization there in Jerusalem. And you get to this one section that's the Antonio Fortress. The guide will take a, a, a thing of water after they're talking about Jesus being clothed in a robe and they're mocking him, scourging him. They've put a crown of thorns on his head, they they have tied his hands behind his back, they've given him a, a scepter to mock him, and they're actually playing a game like Monopoly, but it was called the King's Game. The Romans the, the centurions, the the Roman soldiers played this game, and they're actually using him as a live piece on the board game. And while they're doing this, one of the things they do is they put a cloth over his head while his hands are behind his back, and they sucker punch him, and they say, prophesy who hit you. And he's enduring all this. And they're just they're beating the daylights out of him. And this is before he's even had to walk up the Via Dolorosa with the cross to, to, to get to Golgotha. And, and as, as he's enduring all this, if you, if you go with a guide and you get in the Antonio Fortress, you gather in the area, and you can read that passage of Scripture, and the guide can take a, a bottle of water and pour it out over the granite. And as it goes out, all of a sudden, the relief of the king's game appears before your very eyes. This is quite likely the location where they did this to him. Fascinating. And, and here you're thinking, why is he being beaten? You know, this is not the mindset of, of, of the Jewish world. Their Messiah was coming in to deliver them from the oppression of Rome and, and deliver them from their enemies. But the greatest enemy of mankind is our sin nature, He's come to set us free from the thing that puts us in the greatest amount of bondage, and that's our inability to serve God. And for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says in in the Old Testament that that blood must be shed for the remission of sins. Come let us reason together. Your sins were as scarlet. I've washed you as white as snow. And sin is, uh, there's the arrow, there's the bullseye. It's an archer's term. How far you've fallen from perfection. Here's perfection. Here's where we are. Every religion is a world is man trying to hit the bullseye, but we can never do it. Christianity is different, is because they move the bullseye to where we are. Christ's righteousness is put on our account. He pays the penalty, the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, death. I can't pay for you, you can't pay for me because I'm a sinner. I have my own, you know, we hear about Charles Manson, he's on death row, and he's, he, his life is waning, and it's any moment he's probably going to die. And, and it's one thing to die for a good man, but to die for a bad man? Yet Christ died for all of us. And why? Because we're the only creature in all of God's creation that's committed cosmic treason. We have deliberately walked away and disobeyed our creator, and the wages of that is death. And we knew that, but we chose what we chose. And and so here you have this picture that he's describing. I'm going to Jerusalem for this sole purpose to die as a propitiation, as a covering, to pay this penalty. I'm going to pay the penalty that you've racked up. I'm going there because you are under the, the law of sin and death. And I'm going to set you free by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Messiah is going to set you free from the bondage of sin and, and the penalty of sin. Now, what's fascinating is when we were in Qumran and you go to the, the Dead Sea there in Qumran, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest uh, living copy of, of the scriptures. And they found it in a cave. A shepherd boy found it trying to get his. And, and, and they're, it's, it, they're still completely accurate to what the scriptures we have today. It'd blow you away. And the lowest point on earth, where it's protected by multiple levels of atmosphere, and the driest place on earth, there these scriptures were protected on bellum and, 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 and in the scripture, one of the things that survived is this writing from Isaiah. It's is what they call a messianic passage in Isaiah 53. "'Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground.'" He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our face from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all this is a messianic passage speaking of the messiah he was oppressed and we and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth he was taken from prison and from judgment And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities, their sins. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is Isaiah 53 and it speaks of a suffering Messiah and one who would be beaten and whipped. By his stripes we are healed, and as a lamb is silent to the slaughter, so he opened on his mouth. And Jesus explains this to the disciples. He says, I am going to be betrayed by the chief priests, and the scribes are going to condemn me to death, and they're going to deliver me to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt with man. In Revelation, it calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, which is in the Greek, the A and the Z, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's basically the alphabet of God. Whatever the father had to say to the world, he said it through his son. And Jesus is the embodiment of the word. We have this feast of tabernacles, and this is the idea that God tabernacled with man. He came in an earthly tent, and this is what tabernacle the feast of tabernacles. He tabernacled with man, and and, and he, he brought the word of God to man. Now he's the embodiment of the word. He's the living word. And the Bible says he is the word. So what does that mean? That means that what I just read in Isaiah 53, Jesus was completely familiar with. The Messiah is completely familiar with this. My point is what awaits him in Jerusalem. He already knows about, he knows every lash he's going to receive. He knows every beating he's going to endure. He knows what he's going to face. He knows it all. And he knows it in great detail. My point is this, a lot of, you know, that my father uh, was a Navy captain Three tours of Vietnam. You know I grew up in Coronado. You know that I've been around Admiral James Stockdale and Sybil Stockdale. You also know uh, the story about a family friend, uh, James and Shirley Stark, Captain James Stark. Uh, Captain Stark at the the time, Commander uh, James Stark, and Jim is how we call him, he was a prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. He'd been shot out of his A six, uh, shot down out of his A six. He ejected before it blew up, broke his left arm that he had to set in prison, and and to this day he's still living. To this day it's fused. So he, when he runs, he runs like this. Um, when we got to know the family, when uh, being in Coronado, uh, all the kids in our school, in our elementary school, were given bracelets for some of the uh, prisoners of war that were accounted for and some that were missing in action, you'd get a little bracelet made out of pewter and you put it on your wrist and you keep it on your wrist for a couple reasons. One was to pray for them. And two, when they got home, you got to take it off and it would tarnish. It was really, they weren't made out of great metal and they would tarnish. I remember my arm always being green and I, you got one on, amen. And so I was wearing this uh, and mine said, Commander James Stark. Well, my mother being so involved in the community tracked down Shirley Stark and befriended her and her daughter because here she was as a, as a mother, um, with her husband imprisoned and having to raise this child, my mother would bring meals and befriend them. And they became very close to our family. I'll never forget when, uh, commander Stark was released he came home and I got to take my bracelet off and I got to meet this man. And he was an Adonis of a man. He was like six foot four and just at the time, obviously, he had endured so much pain and suffering that he was skinny. But over time, I started to see this man and return to his former self. And he was athletic and and I was competing and swimming in water polo. So I'd run on the beach and Captain Stark would be there. He'd been promoted to captain. He would then retired and we'd run on the beach together and it was a two mile run from the rocks at the Hotel Del down to the North Gate, and then all the way back. When we get back, he would always beat me. I'd always be in his rearview mirror, and I'm trying to gain on the guy, and he's just whooping me. And uh, I noticed that he would run like this, and the other thing I noticed was this awful scar on his back. It was just one of the most disgusting scars you can imagine. And he was a man of very few words. I couldn't get him to talk, although I did know that he'd been a prisoner. He would never comment on it, but over time, he started to open up a little bit. And I remember one day I I asked him, and he didn't answer, and then I waited a while and asked him again. I said, Captain Stark, what is the scar on your back? He said, Ah, it's where they hung me on a meat hook. And that's all he said. And he he didn't want to talk about it anymore. Okay, we'll just leave that alone, because he has muscles in places where I don't have places. And then I remember one time when I asked him, I said, what was the hardest thing. And this had taken many months. I said, what was the hardest thing you had to face? He said, well, he said, uh, they would set the, the time each day. And when you were supposed to face torture and you knew that the clock was set. And if it's three o'clock in the afternoon, you wake up. And even before you go to bed, you're still thinking how many hours until three o'clock And the torture would increase in your mind. It was psychological torture before you faced the physical torture because you knew what was awaiting you. And as the clock ticked closer to the time and then they would drag you out, you knew what was coming. He said it got to the point where that in and of itself was torturous because it would ruin the course of your day. If it was a mystery, you never knew. But every day was fearsome because you knew three o'clock was coming. And I've heard more stories than you can imagine. And I remember one story in, uh, of what Admiral Stockdale had said to a, a, a man who said, I don't think I can do this. He's coming in. He said, I don't think I'm going to endure, endure this. And, and they're wheeling out Stockdale as he's just been brutally beaten. He was the highest ranking, highest decorated uh, uh, Vietnam veteran, Medal of Honor. And he is, he's in a gurney. And as he walks by, he sees this newly being inducted uh, prisoner at the Hanoi Hilton. he looks at him and he goes, hey, son, take heart. At least it's shore duty. Who says that? But this was Stockdale's strength. And these men made it through. And and here you see this picture, three o'clock looming. Well, for Christ to go to Jerusalem, everything about the crucifixion, he knows. And he's in this human tent, this tabernacle, this fleshly body that ashes to ashes, dust to dust, though the, the full deity is is encased in it, he knows what's waiting him, and he's tempted and struggles in all ways, and it was the most brutal death any human has ever endured. The Romans took it to a whole new level. You died from suffocation because you'd have to pull yourself up to breathe as you were crushing on your lungs and your heart, and you had to pull yourself up to breathe on the nails. M- most would be tied. He was, he was crucified, he was pierced, scripture says. They pierced his hands, his feet, Old Testament. They, they, they spoke of crucifixion 800 years before it had been invented. Old Testament. And, and here he is pulling himself up to breathe, and he would die from suffocation, actually probably a broken heart. they had beaten him so profusely that the blood poured out of him, and as he went up the Via Dolorosa carrying his own cross, he, and they pierced his side and blood and water came out, that is this idea that there was nothing left. He had just completely bled out. Why? Because blood must be shed for the remission of sins. Who was he? He was the Lamb of God's sacrifice like he would have in the Old Testament sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Not a lamb as a substitute, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. The world didn't see that. They didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it. It took me years to grasp it. And you've all, when he talked about it, and, and here it's spoken of in Isaiah long before it occurred. And Jesus knew everything that was waiting. And he pours his heart out, tells these guys, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mocked, scourged, and crucified. And then I'll be resurrected on the third day. And he pours his heart out to him. And as soon as the last word leaves his mouth, he will rise again. The last word leaves his mouth. This woman comes up and goes, can I talk to you about my boys? And you can imagine if I were Jesus, and thank God I'm not, I'd go, really, really. I mean, we've been doing this for a while now. We're three years into this. This is the last trip to Jerusalem. I've faced this three times. I've explained it to you. I set the little child on my lap, and I said, "You want to be great, the King God? You, you come to him as a child." I went through the whole description. I've been pouring myself pouring into you guys, and you bring your mother. This is pathetic. We're gonna do another storm on Galilee, and this time I'm not coming out to bail you guys out. You're just all going under. I'm getting new resumes for a whole new group of 12. <laughs> Aren't you glad I'm not? <laughs> Jesus. And what's fascinating is when she approaches him, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't go, really? And turn to the guy. What, what's wrong with you guys? And it, and it creates division immediately amongst all the disciples. The ten are against the two. It's no longer the twelve together. The ten are against the two, and they are they're at they're at each other's necks. They are fighting with one another because of this power move. Can one sit on my on your left and the other on your right? Is that okay? You think we can do this? And the others are like, oh, ho. And you can imagine James and John. Well, why wouldn't we? I mean, Peter, he called him Satan. He's obviously not going to be able to rule like we are. We weren't called Satan. And we were up at the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. He brought us up there. Yeah, so we're part of him too. We got to go out and cast out demons and all that stuff also. Yeah, but you, when we came down the mountain, you couldn't even heal the demon-possessed boy. Yeah, well, you didn't either. Jesus did. Well, so, but we were with him. You don't know. And they're just, they're going off on each other, right? And, and and Jesus just is looking at this going, okay, I just poured out my heart. And they're fighting. And if you ever saw Saving Private Ryan when the, the whole company is just about to melt down and he just goes, I'm a teacher. And they're, they're all stunned. They're like, what? You want to know what I do? I was a teacher back in Pennsylvania. And everyone like, calms down. They're about to kill each other. Guns pointing at each other. Have you ever seen Saving Private Ryan? It was a great scene. And this is what Jesus does. He said, come over here. As they all gather around, he just says, you know, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no clue what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they're like, yeah, we can do that. Of course we can drink the cup. He's like, yeah, you'll, you're going to drink the cup. And by the way, the word cup in, in, the scriptures, everywhere that you read, especially in Jeremiah 25, Psalm 75, um, Revelation 14, um, Revelation 16, this cup always represents the wrath of God. So this, the wrath of God is going to be poured out on me. I'm going to, I'm going to take the penalty for everybody's sins. Can you drink that cup? And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) Who couldn't? Yeah, I'm in. Yeah. Oh yeah. And by the time that the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter and he won't have a friend on the face of the earth and they're all going to bail on him. And he doesn't go, you say that, but you are idiots. He doesn't do that. And the thing that blesses me is Jesus loves the fact that they're ambitious. He loves the fact that they believe his kingdom is coming. The religious leaders didn't believe it was coming. They, they bought into this idea that his kingdom's coming. They wanted in on the kingdom, one on the left, one on the right. So he commends them for their ambition. He commends them that they want to be great. Let me tell you, Christianity isn't losing your ambition, if, you know, you look at Aristotle, he talks about the doing virtues and the thinking virtues. You all wake up with a passion. There's something that drives you. You either wake up and you're hungry or you're whatever. And, and you're going to be driven by those passions and those desires, but they have to be matched with what Aristotle would call the thinking virtues. You have to match this doing virtue with a thinking virtue that you do what's right. You wake up hungry, you don't go for the cold pizza. Remember that? We, we have the protein shake that makes your mouth gritty, but it saves your life. <laughs> One makes you fat and lazy, and the other one, you know, gives you some energy to serve people and live longer for your grandkids. And, and it's awful, every drink sip of it, <laughs> right? But that's, that's the thinking virtue. And we're always thinking for the sake of others. And here, these guys, they have passions. He doesn't shut them down. Our founders realized that man has a sin nature and we look at this libido dominandi this lust for power and so they they created a system of government that would keep it in check but still give us this competing passions to work towards a common end it was a brilliant mind that put this together these thoughts and so he doesn't crush the passion he doesn't he doesn't stifle them he's actually encouraged by it and he doesn't he doesn't condemn the mom he doesn't say anything bad to her he just says he just says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, be baptized with baptism about to be baptized with? And then they respond by saying, we're able. And so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and my left, that's for my father to decide. What he's saying is James, John, John, you're the youngest. He was the youngest of the 12 disciples, real young kid. James is his brother. He's older. He said, you guys are going to, you're going to, you're going to be baptized the same way. You're going to face pain. You're going to face trial and suffering. I'm going to drink the cup as a substitutionary propitiation for all the world's sins. Your death, your blood poured out isn't going to be for the salvation of man. It's going to allow man to see me and what I've done for them. And you will suffer for standing for that. And, And he probably looked at James. He said, James... You're going to be the first one to die, and John, you're going to be the last. These two disciples are the bookends of the apostles. James would be the first martyr; John would be the last. He would actually die of old age, which is martyrdom in and of itself. He witnessed all of his friends die before him. He was tried; they tried to kill him, boil him alive on the island of Patmos. And so you have these two guys. He says, "Yeah, you're going to drink of it, but not to the capacity I am. You're going to suffer for my sake and for others to know me, but you're not going to die to save them." Only I can do that. He says, so I love the fact that you want to be part of this kingdom, but where you guys are going to be in the hierarchy is not mine to give, it's the Father's. And remember, momentarily, Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane where we were with the team, and it was there that Jesus said, Father, if there be any way this cup, the wrath, if this cup be taken from me, but not my will, thy will be done. Is there any other way to do this? But Father, you're in charge, and this is how you want to do it? I yield. I'm here to serve. And Christ, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant and a death, even death on a cross. And and as he says this, the ten heard it, and they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Jesus called them to himself. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. We're in the midst of that right now. We're watching Hollywood meltdown. We're watching the political world meltdown. Because since the sexual revolution, this libido dominandi, libido, is this idea of exercising your will onto somebody else. It's one way to destroy a culture. And we can do it in the sexual realm too. And you got Hugh Hefner and you got all these folks and the idea is men are suppressing women and now the pendulum's swinging and it's like we're going to get them all back and anyone who's even looked at me sideways is, you know, and, and everyone, we're in this watching what we've created, this monster we created and we're, de- we're decrying its existence. Because we've walked away from the Lord and we're realizing what's supposed to be an expression of intimacy isn't. It's been a- an opportunity to subject another person to our will. And all of a sudden culture is just imploding. And, and they're fighting with each other. And we're watching division across the board. Doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative or in the everybody's facing this. Everybody. And and here they're melting down before his very eyes. And he says, This is how the Gentiles do it. They lord it over each other. A third of the Roman Empire were slaves. If you burn my meal and and you were my slave i could kill you and face no judgment i had power you you were you were a number you were irrelevant you're on this earth to make me happy and if i don't like it you're dead and the roman empire operated by slaves now true that it is all slaves are servants but not all servants are slaves let me repeat that all slaves are servants but not all servants are slaves there were some who were enlisted as servants and they got paid and they had an agenda and they're going to put up with it for a while. And once I get out of your you know, employment, I'm doing my own deal. But a slave had to be a servant. You don't have a will. You don't, you're here for no other reason than to make my life easy. You're here for no other reason than to make sure I'm happy. That's all there is to it. A servant lives the life to benefit others. And that's why you're here. That's how the Romans would look at it. And Jesus uses that and he says, He says, this is how the Gentiles do it. The Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. I'm great because you all serve me. (laughs) Right? But watch what happens. Jesus says in verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you. Christian, this is not the way we work. He says, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. You want to be great? That's a good thing. Let me, how you, let me tell you how, how you do it in the kingdom of God. You serve. You serve. That means you take the lowest position and you do it with joy. And he goes further. He says, whoever desires to be first among you, you want to be really great? You want to be first among all of them? Don't be a servant. Be a slave. Where you have no rights. You're already owned by a master and you live to make others, other, other people benefit. Revolutionary. You know, we took this trip to Israel. Over 50 people. I took a Few folks to help out on the trip, and I'm not going to expose them and tell you who it is. But without exception, if I were to interview each of the folks that went on this trip and say who served you, and just without exception, you would say was the the servant that made everyone else just realize they are a servant because of how thoughtful and selfless they were. And and I. I know this person and everyone who's come up to me has confirmed what I've already known for years. I, I, I know this person and people are coming up going this, Oh, you can't believe it, How they, and I was just, and I, and, and the amazing thing about this person, you have no idea if they love you or don't like you because they treat everyone the exact same. Think about this. On the night that Jesus was be, to be betrayed, he girded himself, washed the feet. He said, one of you will betray me. No one knew who it was because he didn't treat Judas any differently than he treated John. No one had a clue. He loved them. He even said to Judas, friend, why are you here? He served them all. And that's the fascinating thing. I'm, I'm watching this before my very eyes and people coming up going, this person has blessed me and this person. And I, I'm like, I knew that. That's why they're on the trip. And that's what's so amazing here is that person rises in significance. You know, you want to be great. It's good to have ambition, but you do it as a servant. And if you really want to be super great, you do it as a slave. Do you not know, Paul writes in first Corinthians nine, do you not know that those who run the ra- run in a race all run, but one receives the prize run in such a way as that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. And the idea is Paul's saying, yeah, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant. That's the crown we're looking for. And people will know your servants. And the true test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. Do you know who I am? How dare you talk to me like that? Or, that doesn't bother me. I'm here to serve you. I flew all the way back all night, five hour layover in Paris. And this isn't to toot my horn. This is just the best example I've given. It stinks. But I, I get to the council meeting. I land at like 1.30, traffic, get home around four. I got to be at the council meeting at six. I get to the council meeting because the person in charge said I had to be there. One council member was missing. I did everything I could to get there. I get there and it's a meeting on marijuana that lasts about an hour. I left, I left 50 people to come to, but you know what? You know why? Because I'm there to serve. I didn't do it with irritation. I did it with a smile. I didn't let them know what it cost or anything involved in it. They had no idea what was entailed for me to be there for that one-hour meeting. And, and, and this, is, this is that idea. Now, I pale in comparison to what I witnessed on this trip. But I know that that was a test because there were times where I'm like, do you know what I'm doing and who I am? And my flesh, you know, just wanted to take over. But this is that idea. And so when he lays this out and he says, if you want to be number one for all of them, don't just be a, a servant, be a slave. And then he adds this just as another way to look at just as is even as. He concludes the passage by saying, "Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for the many." I'm doing this for you. You do it for each other. I'm setting an example. I don't have the clicker. Do you guys know where the clicker is for the? Anybody have the clicker? I want to show you something. And as they're bringing it, I want to, I want to conclude, kind of this idea that to be great in the kingdom of God is to be a servant of all. Thank you, servant. Here's Salome, that's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She was actually there when Jesus was crucified. Her life would be profoundly changed. Another old picture, there's John, the little tiny guy next to the mom who's got her head covered and she's looking out for her boys. The others are like, I'm gonna kill him. A bondservant, and this is what's interesting is every one of the disciples were so impacted by Matthew 20 and what occurred that they changed their names for life. You look at Paul, Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is doulos, it's under rower. It's the person that rows the Roman galley. You don't have a name, you have a number, and you just row, and you don't get to see daylight. You just row for the sake of where somebody else wants to go. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul would say, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, didn't say the half-brother of Jesus. No, he called himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude one a bondservant of Christ he was also the half brother of jesus dulos in the greek bondservant under rower a slave bondman man of servile condition one who gives himself up wholly to another's will one who is devoted to another to do the, to the disregard of one's own interests it's a servant Oswald Chambers, his wife's name was Biddy Chambers. He died of an appendicitis in Egypt, and he had ministered during the Great War. Um, and he was so profound. And the reason why we have his writings in the second most uh, purchased book in the history of Christendom, first is the Bible, second is my utmost first highest. He didn't write it. His wife, Biddy, transcribed all of his sermons and put it together. And then when she finished transcribing it, a fire burned it, and she transcribed them all again. We would never have his writings, and we don't even know who Biddy is. She's the one who inspired him to be a servant, and he wrote, Quit praying about yourself and spend your life for the sake of others as a bondservant of Jesus. That is the true meaning of being broken bread and poured out wine in real life. And he was that. And you you got Martin Luther King, Jr. Now, this is is a, a clip of what he said. I want you to go and read the full transcript of what he said, but this is a synopsis of it. The Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. And on the night he used to be betrayed, he washed their feet. And he took on the lowest form. This is God. And he's teaching his people to serve. This is the economy of the kingdom of God. The world is about themselves. Jesus came for the sake of others. And then, again, I want to reemphasize veterans. But I want to conclude with two pictures Anybody know that guy? Probably not. His name's John Bradley. He's a corpsman, was a corpsman. He died in 94, or as one president would say, a corpsman. He was a corpsman in the United States Navy attached to a Marine detail in February of 1945 on Iwo Jima. He received the Navy Cross, second only to the Medal of Honor. He was wounded, got the Purple Heart, two silver stars and a bronze star. He was attributed in the book, uh, Flag of Our Fathers, that his son wrote as being one of the original folks to put the first flag on Mount Suribachi. Remember the Joe Rosenthal picture on Iwo Jima? He actually traveled the country promoting for war bonds, came back, and when he was finished, he, he put it all in a box, bought a funeral home, and went to work and quietly served his community at the most critical moment in everybody's life when when the loved one passes. And he served this community faithfully for years and years and years. His wife said for the first four years when he was back, he had nightmares. But after that, he learned to cope and adjust. And he raised the, the kids to the point that when he died, his son had no idea that his dad had served in World War II had no idea about his father, and he went up into the attic, found a box, and in the box was the Navy Cross, two silver stars, bronze star, and all these war bonds and pictures of him traveling the country with superstars and movie stars. And, and here he is, John Bradley, just quietly, quietly serving a nation. Pretty fascinating. This guy right here, if you've ever driven down I-5 south to San Diego, you go by bazalone Road. It's named after this Marine sergeant by the name of John Bazelone, John Bazalone served in Guadalcanal during the Marines' birthday. He served in Guadalcanal, held a machine gun position, was instrumental in saving the entire unit as they were overrun by the Japanese, protecting Henderson Field, and was given the Medal of Honor, carrying this massive machine gun, burned his hands, third-degree burns, and carried the machine gun, defended... And, and staved off the enemy until he was out of weaponry, fired with his pistol, went and grabbed another machine gun, carried it back to the position, held him off and killed hundreds and hundreds of the enemy and protected all of his men. He, was, he received the Medal of Honor, came back to the United States and traveled the country for war bond purposes and was so burdened that he wasn't in combat that he said, I, I, I want to go back. They said, no, we'll offer you a commission as an officer. We need you to continue to do this. We need your effort in the United States. He said no, and he turned down the commission, got out of the Marine Corps and reenlisted. Came back in. When they let him back in the Marine Corps, he went to Camp Pendleton. When he was there, he met a woman in in Little Italy and married her and uh, was reassigned and sent to Iwo Jima, where on Iwo Jima, he received the Navy Cross, second only to the Medal of Honor and a Silver Star, And he died in Iwo Jima um, from shrapnel wounds from a Japanese mortar round. And you just, you, you look at this and you want to talk about a servant. You're sitting here this morning, now this afternoon, able to open the scriptures and read what you have because men and women laid their life down. And here we are Christians and God commands, this is our commanding officer who says, you want to be great in my outfit? I'm not interested in servants, I'm interested in slaves. Not slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. That you live your life for the sake of others. And as Alan Redpath said, Christians are stepping stones for others to get to Christ. And he'll be upset with me, but I want to tell you why I'm drawn to Stuart. When I was on this cruise, we went for self-enjoyment only to realize that Stuart and his wife, Anna, had been ministering to this group of folks that we didn't know anything about for years. And we got invited into their lives. And it didn't end up becoming a vacation for us. It became something even greater, an opportunity to reach into their lives at some critical moments where they were suffering deeply and hurting. And, and all of a sudden, friendships developed as a result of that. And it made the, the trip that much more fulfilling and that much richer. And now I have a friend a dear friend. This is how God operates. And I'll leave you with two stories and I'm finished. I want to tell you about two funerals. One I, one I officiated and the other I attended. The very first funeral I ever officiated, I was 33 years old, newly minted pastor at Calvary Chapel San Jose. And I got a call from the funeral home that they needed a pastor to officiate the funeral. I said, I'll come. Hadn't done one before. I did my studies. I got there. I'm thinking, I'm ready to really spark this one and reach lives, and this is going to be good. And I get there, and I'm like, am I late or am I early? There's nobody here except for two people in the front, a woman and this little, little girl, probably 10, 11. And then the casket. I'm like, well, this is the right place. I went out looked at the door. It's the right place. And, and the woman who had died was 33 years old, my same age. I'm, I'm there, and I'm saying, is anyone else coming? She said, no, no one else will be here but myself and my granddaughter. And I said, "Can you tell me a little bit about her?" She says, "Well, she's been a drug addict her whole life. She was my daughter. Um, she's been estranged from every member of the family, and um, she got pregnant. And this is the best thing she's ever done. But her daughter's never met her, knows her. And I figured it'd be important for her to say goodbye to her mother. And we're the only ones here today. I thought this is a tragic life." It had a huge impact on me because I contrasted it earlier on when I wasn't ordained and I was working as a youth director at an Armenian church in Fresno. And I was on staff and I was getting paid to work with the kids. And Roger Manassian was the pastor. We had an assistant pastor, Calvin Segarian, and, and there was a guy that would come in and volunteer. His name was Harold Haig, and we called him HH. And Harold was a little tiny guy, and he wasn't fat, but he wasn't fit but he was just slow and sweet and always smiling and real quiet and just, oh, I'll get that, you know, and he'd, he'd bring the coffee the way I liked it, and I'm like, wow, thanks, Harold, coffee, that's cool. And we'd kind of make fun of him a little bit, like, HH, I'm going to need some coffee here. And we we played with him, and, and everyone worked him, and he just never broke us, just did everything, just did it with joy. And I thought, poor guy, didn't have family, didn't have anything. He's got to spend his time here at this deadbeat church working with me and, and it was just, it was, it was strange. And then one day Harold died. I thought, you know, I'm going to do him a favor. I'm going to, I'm going to go to his funeral. You know, he, he brought me coffee and he did all the busy work in the youth ministry and got the labels done and he would do stuff I didn't want to do. And he did the busy work and he always did it joyfully. And I thought best thing I can do. And I, I went to his funeral and I got there on time thinking, nobody's going to be there. So I better, you know, get there. And getting there on time was late because I had to stand out in a crowd because the entire sanctuary was packed full of people. And because I knew the church, the Armenian church, I came in through the narthex and came into the side and sat by the, the edge. So I got a front row view of his three daughters and his three son-in-laws and all of his grandkids. I didn't know anything about his family. I didn't know anything about his life. Apparently, I wasn't the only one he was serving because the entire room was filled with people he'd served his whole life. Came to find out about his wife who was bipolar he loved her and cared for her. And one night after Thanksgiving, she said, I'm gonna go for a walk. He said, okay, sweetie, I'll do the dishes. You come back. She walked down to a vacant lot, a couple blocks down from their house, covered herself in gasoline, and lit herself on fire. He raised those three girls, connected them with the three son-in-laws who absolutely adored him. The grandkids adored him. He they, they would tell stories about, and they were sobbing while they were talking about him. And person after person spoke of his life, and I was... I was humiliated, lovingly humiliated by Harold's life. And I realized at that moment I have no clue what it means to be a servant, let alone a slave. And the entire church was packed because he lived his life for others. You want your funeral service empty or you want it full? Well, that's going to depend on how you live. If it's all about you, it's going to be people that are obliged to be there. But I'll tell you what, everyone who was at Harold's service wanted to be there and couldn't say enough nice things about him. And they could have talked long into the following days. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, don't just be a servant, be a slave. Be a doulos. I'll tell you what, the world needs Servants. We're so consumed with ourselves; we don't care about others. And this is his outfit, and we're part of it. And this is how he measures our lives, by our willingness to lay them down. So may God inspire us by his word today and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and I thank you for your faithfulness in our lives and how you have clearly laid out for us what makes us great in your kingdom. And that is to not just be a servant, but a slave that we live, that others would be able to connect with you. And we're stepping stones for others to come to Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your word that has inspired us. And we pray that you would establish this in our hearts, that in the coming days, as you see fit for us to move to the Dos Fientos Y, we would step into that community with hearts of servants And you chose how to minister to this community and to lay our lives down. And so, Lord, we commit all this to you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.